like to ask you to turn in the scriptures to Proverbs chapter 6. This spring we've been studying through the first nine chapters of Proverbs. Proverbs is God's 3,000-year-old instruction manual for how to live wisely. It was written by Solomon, who served as king in Jerusalem, Israel's king in Jerusalem from about 970 to 930 BC, so he reigned for about 40 years. In the Bible, wisdom refers to a skill. I've tried to stress this every week. Wisdom is a skill. It's a relational skill. It's the skill of rightly relating to God in every facet of life. I've tried to emphasize that even though Solomon doesn't explicitly mention the coming king of Israel, the Messiah, Solomon writes knowing the plan of God going all the way back to the first page of the Bible. He knows that sin and death are only going to be overthrown by God's chosen king, the king who's going to come from Abraham's offspring and the king who's going to come from David's offspring, the king who's going to restore blessing to the world when he comes and reigns in everlasting peace. Solomon understands this whole scope, and if you doubt that, I just encourage you to study Psalm 72, the Psalm of Solomon. Today I'm preaching Proverbs 6. Two weeks ago, the last message in this series of studies was when Pastor Greg preached Proverbs 5 as a powerful sermon. It's a sermon that we need. In that message on the ruinous consequences of adultery, Greg very memorably and somewhat humorously observed that Solomon is writing as a father to his sons and his warning sounds something like this. Son, beware bad friends, read your Bible, watch out for girls. Son, really, watch out for girls. Son, beware laziness and lying, beware girls. And remember, son, Beware girls. Now, the issue of sexual immorality is addressed five major times in nine chapters. And Greg, of course, rightly pointed out that if the book were written from a mother to a daughter, it'd consistently warn against guys, because neither men nor women are naturally better or worse than the other. We're all infected with sin, and we all need warnings about folly and encouragements to wisdom. It's, it's not gender-specific. But this is a father writing to sons, and there are repeated warnings about girls. We're going to see as we read chapter 6 that the last half of the chapter is going to warn against girls again. The sons are going to be warned against girls. The first half of the chapter is going to warn about three ways of life that lead to ruin, and then there's going to be a fourth warning against the ruinous consequences of adultery again. So Proverbs chapter 6. In the first five verses, Solomon basically says, beware the ruin that comes to unwise cosigners. My son, if you've put up security for your neighbor, have given your pledge for someone you barely know, If you're snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself, for you've come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, hasten, plead urgently with your neighbor, 
Give your eyes no sleep, your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. He says, unwise cosigning is like being an animal who's trapped in a snare about to be killed. In verses 6 through 11, he basically says, beware the ruin that comes to those who are lazy. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways. Become wise. Without having any chief, officer, ruler, she prepares her bread in the summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long are you going to lie there, O sluggard? When are you going to rise up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. That's how your poverty is going to come upon you. It's going to, it's going to overtake you like a robber, like an armed man. So those who are lazy are going to end up in financial need and ruin. Clearly, not all poverty is the result of laziness, but some is. Verses 12 to 15, you have a sevenfold description where Solomon basically says, beware the ruin that comes to good-for-nothings in society. Good-for-nothings is exactly what the term translated worthless means. Good for nothing. A good for nothing, a wicked person, goes about with crooked speech, winking with his eyes, signaling with his feet, pointing with his fingers. All of this is basically saying their body language communicates that whatever they're saying out of their words is not what they really mean. They're deceivers. With perverted heart, verse 14, he devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity is going to come on him suddenly. In a moment, he'll be broken beyond healing. This good-for-nothing who's constantly lying and slandering others is going to experience a sudden downfall. Now, verses 16 to 19, there's another sevenfold description that crowns the previous one, and it really crowns everything that's preceded it. There's been this massive warning against adultery in chapter 5, and then warnings against unwise cosigners, and then warnings against the lazy, and then warnings against good-for-nothings, and 16 to 19 kind of crowns it all before moving back to the subject of adultery. The way I'd say it is beware living a life that's repulsive to the Lord. There are six things that the Lord hates. Seven are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among the brothers. He says, beware living a life that's repulsive to the Lord. The climactic consideration is this. Arrogant, dishonest, disobedient people they don't just ruin themselves. They're repulsive, detestable, repugnant, revolting to God. <clears throat> now beginning in verse 20 to the end of the chapter, Solomon warns again that ruin comes to those who fall to the temptation of adultery. My son, keep your father's commandment. Forsake not your mother's teaching. 
Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. When you walk, they'll lead you. When you lie down, they'll watch over you. When you awake, they'll talk with you. Solomon here is echoing Deuteronomy 6. His language of binding them on your heart, tying them around your neck, walking with you in the way, going to bed with you when you lie down. Deuteronomy 6, 6 to 8. He says then in verse 23, because the commandment is like a lamp, the instruction is like a light, and the reproofs of discipline, receiving correction, are the way of life. Here Solomon is echoing Psalm 119. Lord, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It's going to preserve you, verse 24, from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Don't desire her beauty in your heart. Don't let her capture you with her eyelashes. For the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread. It seems so small in the beginning, just a little thing. But a married woman hunts down a valuable life. Can a man take fire? next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? He's saying the painful consequences are inevitable. That's the one who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. People don't despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he's hungry. Like, that sin makes sense. But if he's caught, he'll pay sevenfold He'll give all the goods of his house. You can pay back that kind of offense. But the one who commits adultery, verse 32, lacks sense. He who does it ruins himself. The consequences of adultery far exceed the consequences of a sin like robbery. The adulterer will get wounds and dishonor. His disgrace will not be wiped away. For jealousy makes the cheated husband furious. He'll not spare when he takes revenge. He'll accept no compensation, even though you try to multiply gifts. Solomon understood very personally, I think from his own parents, that even though it was possible to be completely forgiven for adultery, adultery was a sin that has far-reaching, ruinous consequences. I can only imagine Solomon looking at all of his brothers, thinking something like that. So the title of today's message is, four ways to ruin your life. If you're a first-time visitor, welcome. (laughs) Okay, I have to get the obvious out on the table, and now I'm going to come back and be very sober and say, I make no apology, and we at Tri-County make no apology for clearly explaining what God has said. And I hope that you see Proverbs 6 is clearly a warning about four ways to ruin your life. That's the chapter in front of us. If this sort of message is unusual for you, I'd encourage you to just step back and evaluate why it's unusual. It could be because you lack familiarity with the Bible and you don't realize that there is so much warning in the Bible. It could be that you are always hearing the Bible taught in a way that kind of gives it a positive spin and kind of picks and chooses places of the Bible that are more encouraging rather than a passage like Proverbs 6. Our congregation is committed to a kind of teaching 
that always seeks to make the main point of the text the main point of the message. That's fundamentally what we're trying to do. So my goal this morning is not to try to be creative with a message that I think is going to be helpful for you right now. I actually am convinced that the only help I can actually give you is to faithfully deliver a message that God has already spoken. And so my goal is to try to be clear. It's to try to be faithful. And I believe in so doing to be helpful, most helpful, eternally helpful. God spoke this word out because he knows we need it. And we better not edit God saying, I don't think I really need what you have to say here. So Proverbs 6 is Solomon's warning about the ruin that comes to foolish cosigners, to the lazy, to the good-for-nothings whose lives are always followed by relational wreckage, and to those who are immoral. Here's the way I try to state the main idea. Those who make ruinous life choices are revolting to the Lord. Those who are wise walk a different path. What I want to do right now is I just want to very quickly walk through the four ruinous choices and then I want to land on this concept of revolting to the Lord. First, beware the ruin that comes to unwise cosigners. Verse 1 in a paraphrase, says, if you co-sign a loan for a friend or guarantee the debt of someone you hardly know, quickly, get out of it as quickly as you possibly can. This is not forbidding taking risk in business. In Ecclesiastes 11, that's a good, wise thing to do. It's not forbidding helping a friend in need, being generous. What we're being warned about here is foolish signing on the dotted line. It could include signing up for college payments when you don't know how you're going to pay them. It could involve mortgage payments for your own house or someone else's house. Fifteen years ago, millions of Americans' lives were affected for years, some for decades, because they signed on the dotted line for adjustable rate mortgages, thinking they could repay them, and then had to declare bankruptcy. Solomon's words apply to partnering in business without having legal protections in place. They apply to those who sign up for high-interest credit cards. They apply to those who sign up for even higher-interest cash advances. These kinds of financial traps are constantly set for adults in our culture and for most teenagers today. Making yourself liable for large amounts of money or else you lose your home and your savings, that kind of financial deal can ruin your life or it can make you miserable for decades. This is wisdom. Interestingly, a pastor pointed this out, and I thought, is this still current? It is. I checked earlier this week, the Federal Trade Commission noticed to cosigners. It basically repeats Proverbs 6. I am now quoting from the United States government. 
You're being asked to guarantee this debt. Think carefully before you do. If the borrower doesn't pay the debt, you'll have to. Be sure you can afford to pay if you have to and that you want to accept this responsibility. That's wise. It's ironic that it's coming from the United States government. <laughs> I don't laugh. I'm not joking. We as a country are ruining the upcoming generations by the immorality of our debt. Proverbs says, beware the ruin that comes to unwise cosigners. Second, beware the ruin that comes to those who are lazy. It's interesting that Solomon begins by saying, look at the ants. You want to talk about a humbling classroom? <laughs> Telling important political figures in his kingdom, go down and look at an anthill in the sand. It's a great classroom. He says, I want you to notice three things about the ants. Verse 7, notice how they're self-motivated. They don't need an employer. They don't need a manager constantly checking them and challenging them to keep up with their work. Amazing ants. Verse 8 is the second lesson. Look at how forward-thinking they are. They foresee the coming winter. It's like wired into them, and they prepare themselves for that trial ahead by working hard all through the summer. Wow. And then in verse 9, it's the third lesson from the ants. Not only are they self-motivated and forward-thinking, but they're hard-working. But the sluggard just wants to kick back and relax. The lazy person's motto, something that I've said too much, why do today what I can put off till tomorrow? For a lazy person, sleep isn't received as a gift. Sleep is like an addiction. It helps us escape the pain of responsibility. Just want to stay in bed. Well, those who are lazy will be overtaken by hardships. That's what the proverb says. Third, beware the ruin that comes to good-for-nothings. These worthless people are those whose words can never be trusted and they can only be counted on to stir up tensions in personal relationships. That's basically summarizing verses 12 to 15. God created us to be honest communicators who build community. He created us to be peacemakers, not troublemakers. No one wants to live or work near someone whose constant mode of operation is just to stir up conflict. Those sorts of individuals, as verse 15 puts it, will eventually experience damage beyond repair. What warnings? The fourth ruin that comes is ruin that comes to those who commit adultery. Since I was 16... I have found that meditating on these verses at the end of Proverbs 6 has helped me as part of a battle strategy against immorality. I've learned from these verses that I tried to start putting to memory around the time I was 16. I've learned that the battle against immorality crucially begins with God's word. I tried to highlight in verses 20 to 24 that Solomon seems to be quoting Deuteronomy 6 and Psalm 119 saying, basically, 
receiving God's word, continually receiving God's word, being a diligent student of God's word, is really the beginning point of fighting this temptation. You need to be a Bible-saturated Christian. It's foolish to try to win this war if you don't have a healthy daily intake of the Bible. I've also learned from these verses, these sobering verses, that the battle against immorality constantly centers on the heart's desires. Before we start talking about externals, we have to start talking about internals. Verse 25 has consistently reminded me that the war begins in the heart. Sad, but in recent weeks, a famous conservative Jew named Dennis Prager, whom I've quoted positively in the past for some of his practical common sense stuff, in recent weeks he foolishly suggested that Judaism focuses on external behavior rather than internal desire. Prager said, according to the Torah, you can't commit adultery in your heart. You can only do it with your body. He said, quote, looking with lust is not a sin in Judaism. He overlooked Proverbs 6.25, not to mention all the philosophical, personal, and social inconsistencies of his position. It's sad. Jesus was a much better interpreter of the Old Testament. When the Lord Jesus said, everyone who looks on a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart, he wasn't changing the Old Testament commands. He was rightly interpreting all that was there. This war takes place in the heart. That must be where the battle is constantly engaged. And third, the battle incessantly rehearses the ruinous consequences. Verses 26 to 35. We're warned about the consequences that come to those who commit adultery. There are long-lasting financial, social, emotional, interpersonal consequences. And I've learned that it is helpful It's not the silver bullet strategy, but it is helpful to keep the ruinous consequences in mind. For example, verse 26, immorality makes people cheap. It treats people cheaply. It devalues people. I tell myself it would cost me my conscience, my integrity, my ministry, my family. Last week, two weeks ago, Greg, when he was teaching on Proverbs 5, he said, Think about the regret. Think about the weeping and the rage of your spouse. Thinking about, think about the trauma for your kids. Think about the questions of divorce that you'll have to face. Think about the possibility of STDs. Think about the harm done to the cause of Christ by your hypocrisy. It is helpful to keep in mind the ruinous consequences. According to verses 30 to 33, immorality is different from other sins. It is a sin, it can be forgiven, but it is different from other sins like stealing. Stealing, to some degree, can be compensated. Immorality can't be. He teaches that the consequences of immorality in this lifetime can't be entirely erased, even for sinners who are fully forgiven by God. Forgiveness doesn't erase all the consequences. Think about the consequences. That's where this goes. It's critical. Okay, now we've worked through the four ways to ruin your life, and we come back to this central point. Beware living a life that's repulsive to the Lord. 
Verses 16 to 19, like I said in the reading, are the climactic consideration of the passage. Those who make foolish choices aren't just ruining their lives, they're acting in a way that's repulsive to God. That's why I worded the main idea, those who make ruinous life choices are revolting to the Lord. It is the most serious consideration in Proverbs 6. Now, in conclusion, I think there are just a couple ways that we must reflect on this, okay? The first way I think we need to reflect on this concept of being repulsive to the Lord is, what is God like? I mean, I thought that God was always loving. The first consideration we have to do when we read a verse like Proverbs 6.16 is we have to say, Do I have an accurate understanding of God as he's revealed himself in the Bible? We live in a culture that horribly, detrimentally oversimplifies this issue. For example, our culture will say something like, God hates the sin but loves the sinner. And our culture says we should do the same. Hate the sin, love the sinner. There is truth in that statement. We should always love the sinner. Absolutely right. But that statement is an oversimplification. Part of the problem is that our definition of hate is bad. We typically think of, oh, those two boys hate each other. They can never get along. She hates broccoli. We think of it almost like an immature arbitrary, kind of irrational um, dislike. That's not the Bible's view of hate. The Bible's view of hate is an intense, settled, controlled, just opposition to someone. Another part of the problem is that we think love and hate are mutually exclusive. We think they're opposite ends of the spectrum, so you either love someone or hate someone. But that's not the Bible. That's not the Bible. The Bible says, Ephesians 2, listen to this. Christians, remember that you were by nature children of wrath, and at that time, because of the great love with which he loved us, God made us alive in Christ. You were an object of God's wrath and God's great love at the same time. Hmm. Most famous passage in the Bible, John 3. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And within the next two verses, the world, the unbelieving world, is defined as those who are already under condemnation. To put it simply, God has great love for those who are under his wrath and condemnation. Such great love that he gave his son to provide a way that we could be saved. I hope that you see it's an oversimplification to think that God only loves and never hates the sinner. No. He stands in intense personal, 
controlled, just opposition to sinners, and at the very same time, in love, in great love, offers them salvation, complete forgiveness, and eternal life. I hope that you will stand here right now and say, God, you're holy. There's no one like you. Perfect in justice. Perfect in love. Right? So first we have to say, do I have a right concept of God? Second, I think we have to say, do I have a right concept of myself? Maybe a more specific, more uncomfortable way of asking the question is, is it possible that I'm revolting to God? That, according to Proverbs 6, that God might hate me, that he might find my life and my thinking and my speech and my behavior repugnant. This is a very serious question that I would urge you to contemplate for some time, especially if it's the first time you're thinking it. I'm just going to give you a simple answer and say, I can't see how any human could read Proverbs 6 honestly and think, you know, I'm all right. I just, I just consistently live in a way that pleases God. I don't think I've ever behaved in a way that's revolting to him. I think if we're honest with ourselves, when we submit our lives to the test of Proverbs 6, and we say, have I ever been foolishly indebted? Have I ever been lazy in a way that chooses sleep over responsibility? Is my life ever marked by pride, by lying, by slanderous speech, by immoral desire? I think the only way we can rightly respond to Proverbs 6 is to say, Lord, I'm repulsive to you. Have mercy. I think it's the only way you can read Proverbs 6. The third concluding reflection on this concept of revulsion is this. Is there any hope for those who are revolting to God? Solomon, the king who wrote Proverbs chapter 6, is the same king who built Solomon's temple, and he's the same king who penned the Song of Songs, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. That teaches us a few critical things, because if you read the Song of Solomon, you understand that this king understood that marriage, and especially sexual faithfulness within marriage, is precious because it's designed by God to mirror the love of God's chosen king for all those he died to save. Song of Songs is saying there's something more significant going on in marriage. And this is the Solomon who built Solomon's temple. He understood well that the only hope for rebels was pictured in the bloody animal sacrifices for sin that would appease the wrath of God. He understood that those sacrifices pictured something coming in the future. In other words, if you would have come to King Solomon after reading Proverbs 6 
and said something like, I need some counsel, wise king. I'm a proud person. I've often slandered people with my tongue. I've often lusted immorally in my heart. Is there any hope for me? King Solomon would say something like, there's hope for you. The story of human history is the story of God committing himself and recommitting himself to people who keep cheating on him. Your revolting rebellion can be forgiven by God if you'll approach him through the sacrifice he commands, the sacrifice he himself provides. To fast forward and fill in all the blanks, the hope for those of us whose lives are revolting to God is King Jesus who died as our sacrifice, who died to purchase people to belong to him forever. If you will call out to Jesus saying, forgive me, through the blood you shed on Calvary, he will forgive you, he will save you. Call out to him saying, Jesus, be my Lord, be my King, be my Savior. I need you. I need your death to cover my sins. I need your resurrection to give me any hope beyond dying for my sins. We need Jesus. This is where I end. It's this concept of revulsion. Do you think that this concept of knowing that there are things that revolt God, behaviors, lifestyles that revolt God, do you think that could be practically helpful in your daily life today? Yeah. But we've had to work through again a right thinking about God, a right thinking about myself, a right thinking about how I might have any hope for being right with God before we can get to rightly using Proverbs 6. I've tried to teach every week that I've taught Proverbs that Proverbs is essentially a vivid, poetic reteaching of the law. Don't lie, work hard, don't commit adultery. Sound familiar? I've tried to remind us that the power to obey the law doesn't come from the law itself. Knowing the law is not where we get power to obey the law. And I've tried to stress, the power to obey the law doesn't come from ourselves. Solomon and his sons, if they knew anything... (laughs) They knew that they didn't have the power within themselves to obey the law. The testimony of Israel's history is God gave them the law and they disobeyed, they disobeyed, they disobeyed, they disobeyed, they disobeyed disobeyed until they faced the consequences for it. Power to obey the law doesn't come from the law and it doesn't come from within ourselves. Power to obey God's law comes from God himself. And so when Christians read Proverbs 6, our reaction has to sound something like this. God the Father, you are holy and I am sinful. God the Son, you're the only one who perfectly obeyed Proverbs 6 and shockingly you died for all of my disobedience to Proverbs 6. I need you. And for all who've trusted in God the Son, we're promised the cleansing, the changing, the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives so that day by day we can say, God the Spirit, 
I need to walk under your rule. I need to trust you to give me power to live like like the law demands. Proverbs 6 then not only drives us to say, I'm revolting to God, I need forgiveness. Proverbs 6 drives us to God the Spirit to say, I need your power to live this out. It should lead us to pray every day something like, God, I want to live human life like you created it to be lived. Father, I don't want to live in ways that are revolting to you. I want to hate what you hate. I want to love what you love. I want to be financially careful. Help! I want to be diligent in my responsibilities. Give strength. I want to be sexually pure. Help! Father, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight. God's law should drive us to God. I hope that week after week as we're studying Proverbs and we have the high bar of the law put up again, we're humbled and we're driven to a point not only where we say, I receive your wisdom, God, but I hope it cultivates in us a heartbeat, a hunger, a constant prayerfulness. Help me, God. Strengthen me, God. Empower me, God. May God's law drive us to God. Let's pray. Father, for all of us who've entrusted our lives to Jesus, I pray that we would leave here knowing that we're graciously forgiven. We're forgiven for all the ways we've not lived up to this. Even if we continue to experience consequences of our foolish behavior, we can be completely forgiven through Jesus of all of our ruinous choices. Thank you. And now, Father, I pray that as we move forward, with all of the pressures, the stresses, the unexpected trials, the continual dealings with our consequences. As we face all these trials in life, God, I pray that we would allow ourselves to live under the control of your spirit so that we would live out Proverbs 6 and be increasingly characterized by wisdom, by diligence, by purity. I pray these things for the glory of your great name. Amen. Amen.